Deuteronomy 26. I'm going to read some stuff that I've been writing this week. And let me just kind of preface this. I, don't, I, I think I've done this three times since we started this church. So we've been in church for three, almost three years. And I think I've only done this like three times. But uh, when you preach a lot or you're teaching a lot, um, there's certain moments when the Lord is rocking, as I like to say, rocking you with something that is just like impacting your life and you want to turn around and just like give to everybody else. Um, but there are certain moments when that kind of collides with a specific thing the Lord wants you to deliver. And that's what happened this week. And so um, I had a uh, Thursdays all day long from 10 to 3 are my study, prep, you know, all that other thing and uh, for sermons. And so uh, I sat down, and I knew what the Lord wanted me to talk about. In fact, I shared it with somebody, Tyler, if you're watching. I shared this with Tyler on Thursday morning. And um, I knew what the Lord wanted to say. However, I was learning something else. And, um, and so I was like, you know what? I think I can cram what the Lord wants to say into what I want to say. Wrote a whole message on Thursday and uh, did not feel good about it the whole time. Friday morning. The Lord corrected me and said, today I'm going to give you his message, and we're not going to get mine. So, um, but I don't normally do titer, title, titers, titles, um, but today I do want to do one. So if you're taking notes, if you're taking notes, today I'm, I'm going to call this Divine Incubators. Divine Incubators. So an incubator is an enclosed apparatus providing a controlled environment for the care and protection of premature babies. It's also used to hatch eggs or grow microorganisms under controlled conditions. But the whole idea is that it is a controlled environment for something to mature. It is necessary for the survival of babies that are born premature to grow and mature to the point that they can thrive in the uncontrolled environment of the world. In a life or spiritual sense, Yahweh frequently uses what I call divine incubation to grow raw, premature anointing, promises, or purposes into the maturity level required to operate fully in them. I think the place where some of the most anointed people get off track is when Yahweh allows them to realize their potential in Him, but doesn't directly send them into some grand influential position. I think we've lost a lot of anointed people because as soon as they realized, oh wait, I'm anointed, and Yahweh didn't directly send them into a position where they could have a lot of influence and leverage that anointing, their first thing to do is, I'm going to extort this. I know what you want for my life, so I'm going to just do it myself if you're not going to do it. This is where you get people who will go off to colleges they're not really supposed to go to. They'll go off to ministries they're not really supposed to go to. They'll go into missions that they're not really supposed to go to. Not, not that they're ever supposed to not go into them, but way too early. You know what I mean? And then they'll get to the end of those seasons and be like, I feel like that was a wasted season. Yes, because it wasn't your moment. You know what I mean? So, um, instead, instead of that, he typically sends us into incubation. Because we've been trained to think quick and massive, 
seasons of maturing are typically seen as a waste and unnecessary. My goal today is to get you to see them not as just necessary, but as seasons, however long they need to be, of joy and fulfilling his word within you. Let me use this analogy. Um, and just, I know there's a lot of Carolina fans. I'm a Clemson fan. Um, that's okay. Both teams won yesterday. So praise the Lord. Um, Clemson really won. I don't think anybody's going to be able to beat them. But, uh, and that's just not as a fan. I just think they're just really good. But um, anyway, Trevor Lawrence, their quarterback, whether or not you're a Carolina or Clemson fan, he's the greatest quarterback maybe that's ever played football, college football. And, um, and so anyway, if you, and if you disagree with that, that's okay. You just don't know what you're talking about. But um, I'm just joking. Way better than Deshaun Watson. Anyway, so Trevor Lawrence obviously has a lot of talent. This is just a real childish example. I was trying to think of somebody from Carolina, but and this isn't a shot. I couldn't, I couldn't think of anybody specific to use this analogy for. But uh, I know there are, I mean, like, that's, I mean, that's not really a shot. I, there probably is. I just didn't know. But anyway, so that's why I'm using Trevor Lawrence. But he obviously has a lot of talent, right? If you watch, he's going to be the number one draft pick next year, you know, might, maybe the next Peyton Manning, you know, all that stuff in the NFL. So he obviously has a lot of talent. If you took that talent and threw him out on a field without being coached, I don't care how much talent he had, he would be nothing. Because somewhere along the way, when he was in elementary school and middle school and high school, there were coaches that were training him to take his raw ability and leverage it in the right way to effectively affect the football game, right? So there's all throughout his life, there's been people to affect how he throws the ball, how he steps into the pocket, you know, all this other stuff, how he looks for receivers, how he studies a playbook. He's not the one coming up with plays. Coaches are coming up with his plays, right? So all along the way, he's had coaches that have taken the raw talent and morphed it into what's going to be the number one draft pick in millions of dollars next year, right? What if you took all that away and just let him grow up until he was 19 years old and threw him out into a game that he had never played before, he had never been coached in before, and they played the Miami game last night. You know what's going to happen? Clemson's going to lose. Why? Because it doesn't matter how much raw talent you have, unless it's formed in the way that it was designed to be formed, you're never going to be able to live fully, I believe even partially, in what you were actually designed in your DNA to be. Right? So, for people who are anointed, you can have all the anointing in the world, but unless you have a, I, be, I believe a long season, I'm about to prove it to you, but unless you have a season where a father or a mother, spiritual father or mother, take that anointing and morph it into the direction and the design that Yahweh intended for it to be, it'll never be the anointing that you have on your life being reached in its full capacity. Okay, so in a family or a corporate sense, 2020 has been a year of incubation. We began the year with arguably more expectations than any other year in the past. I don't know about y'all. That was me. 
It's like, this is going to be the best year ever. We're going to take the world. It's going to be awesome. And then about March, about March hit, right? And Yahweh gave us, coming into the year, some big visions revolving around the idea that he was going to give us a cliche or not, a clear vision. He gave us some big ideas all revolving around he was going to allow us to see clearly, okay? And if you had asked us on January 1st what 2020 would look like, every single answer in the room would have revolved around doing something grand. All of them. If I ask you on January 1st of this year, what is this year going to look like for you? I would dare say every answer in the room would be, I'm going to do this. What we saw three months later was 2020 was not going to be about what we do. Rather, it was going to be about what we don't do yet. 2020, the year of clear vision, has really been a year of rest. I would argue he has forcefully answered our prayers to see clearly. And we, said, we say this all the time, but going into the year, he's going to give us clear vision, clear vision. I think he has absolutely answered that prayer. Churches have closed. People of influence have been shut off. Religion has come to a halt. And one-third of the church that really were pretending before has completely disengaged from the church. And I've said this before, I don't think that one-third of the church has left. I think two-thirds of the church have become real. But in this moment, October 11, 2020, we have to see preparation as just as much a part of your purpose as actually doing what your DNA was built to do. Why? Because none of this is about what you do. All of this is about who you are. What you do, listen to this, what you do means nothing unless it overflows from who you are. So I could teach you messages. I I don't, and I said this, I take Thursdays, but what I do on Thursdays for the most part when I'm planning messages is I'll take all the stuff that the Lord has been speaking to me throughout the week in my personal secret place, and I'll say, Lord, what do you want to speak to your people out of all this? And so everything just overflows from what the Lord's doing in my life. That's how messages should be. I shouldn't have to take, sit down and say, okay, this time next year, we're going to do a series on how to have better finances. That's awesome. I don't think that's how we roll. As a pastor, I've got to be moved by the impulses of the Spirit, not the impulses of Google Calendar. That's a word right there. But, so everything has to overflow. Because it overflows, sermons aren't work for me. Okay? Let me say it like this. Let's say you work at McDonald's, right? If you working at McDonald's is where you find your joy and your happiness and all that stuff, the moment you have a bad day at work, your life is going to start to crumble. And that's happened to all of us, right? But if you are being built up and find joy in the secret place, it doesn't matter what happens at work because everything's overflowing from where you find your joy, which is the source of joy, which is Christ himself. 
right? Which is joy unspeakable and full of glory. That's not what Mickey D's can give you. In a moment it can. If they'd ever get their ice cream machine fixed, it definitely could. Right? <laughs> I got eight more amens on that. Man, I, I love a McFlurry. Sorry, ice cream's broke. Um, so, so Yahweh did not bring Israel out of Egypt to be great landowners. Yahweh did not bring Israel out of Egypt to make them great landowners. He brought them out to be his bride. Jesus didn't come so we could have great ministries or influence masses. He came so we could be his bride. It's really going to mess with some people today. But by being his bride, guess what Israel became? A great nation with the promised land. And by being his bride, guess what we become? Great light spreaders with what the world would call great ministries. So by being his bride, by being his bride, we begin to overflow into things that we used to have to strive to get to. If we ever get this backwards, like we so often easily do, we'll make our lives and our works our purpose rather than letting identity be our purpose. Okay, We need to care way less about what we're supposed to do and care way more about who we're supposed to become. One leads to the other. One destroys the other. Okay, If you go to any church or any ministry or any business today and you ask them what their mission or their vision statement is, it will 100% of the time have to do with what they do. All right, let's say it like this. Reach people far from God. Which I love, by the way. We see people reached all the time. But, well, Josh, what's the vision? What's the vision of, of Dream Church? Well, we're going, we're going to reach people. That sounds awesome, right? Does that sound great? So we don't have visions of what we're called to be. We have visions of what we're called to do. Okay? So every service, every event, and every meaning is elevated and reinforced by our vision. That's why every business and every corporation has vision statements. So we judge success based on what we're going after. So if we're going after reaching and reaching and reaching, then guess what we find success in? Reaching. Right? Here's the issue. What happens when we start reaching and reaching and reaching and reaching and reaching and then you hit a year like this? Then, because we put so much focus on what we do, when what we do is shut off, we're left with the poverty of who we never became. Now flip the script. If you came to me and said, hey, what's the vision of dream? Number one, we don't necessarily have a vision statement. Maybe that's right or wrong. I don't know. Don't really care. But if you came to me and said, hey, what's, what is the vision of dream church? I would tell you to be the bride of Christ. But what are y'all going to do? We're going to be the bride of Christ. 
But how are y'all going to reach people? We're going to be the bride of Christ. But how are y'all going to do ministries? We're going to be the bride of Christ. How many of you think that Jesus sat down one day with the disciples and said, all right, boys, here's the vision of Jesus Christ Ministries Incorporated, nonprofit, 501c3, tax exempt. Never, right? He said, y'all stay here. I got to go be with my father. I love teaching this stuff because nobody else does. So this is awesome, right? I'm saying we need to do, I think we could do ministry on a greater level than we've ever done ministry if we would stop making our purpose about what we do. I think we could reach Columbia in record time if we could all become the bride of Christ. Jesus did ministry effortlessly. Do you know why? Because everything he did was anchored in the moment he rose out of the water and heard the words, that is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. If you could get convinced that you're his beloved son or beloved daughter in whom he is well pleased, not angry, not waiting to knock you down and definitely not far away, but in whom he is well pleased, I promise you, you'd start to reach people in your work and in your college and wherever you are because you would start exuding a light off of you that can only come from the presence of Jesus. Y'all with me? Okay. I'm just teaching the Bible today. I am not teaching what's popular. Okay. So everything that we do here, everything that we do, every service, every event, every meeting we have is elevated and reinforced by who we are. And as we become who we are designed to be, we'll actually create an environment that leverages who we are to do what needs to be done. This is all set up for where we're going, okay? So I'm not going to talk about ministry the whole day. I'm just kind of giving you my perspective. So let me give you this kind of real childish example, and then we'll go to Deuteronomy 26. Um, if, you, if you come into the country illegally, and you, on November 3rd, you go to a polling station and you try to vote. Do you know what they're not going to let you do? Vote. It doesn't matter how much you know the system. It doesn't matter how much you know about the candidates. It doesn't matter what you know about America. If you aren't a citizen of America, they will not let you vote. So it would be crazy to try to come into America, learn everything you need to know, and go to a polling station and try to vote first. Right? What do you do? First, you become an American citizen, and then we got a lot of people voting on November 3rd that don't have a clue. But they're voting because it's just you're an American citizen, right? It overflows from who you are. You see what I'm saying? The kingdom works in the way that Yahweh raises up people, not that are great and talented, primarily. He raises up people who are convinced of who they are to the point that their talents, present or not, can be used to influence the globe. Look at the people that the Lord used. David. David was a nobody. David wasn't even invited to meet the prophet. He was no one. He was out in the field, and the Lord said, I want David. I want the illegitimate son to be my king. Because when everybody looks at him, they're going to look at him and say, there is no possible way that that man could be that man except the Lord plucking him out of a field and placing him in the king, in the king's position. Over and over and over and over, this is who the Lord uses. If you value above all else who you are, Okay, If you value above all else who you are, or if you own a business, who your organization is, you'll start to honor incubation periods. Right? You can rest knowing 
that when Paul says, for example, all things work for the good, he first and foremost is talking about the good of who you become. When he says that, all things work together for the good of those who love him, he's not primarily talking about your situations working out good. They will. But when he says working out for the good, understand that the most excellent good in your life is you becoming what you were designed to become. Y'all with me? See a lot of, I see a lot of like quiet faces in here. So uh, sleepy faces. Go to Deuteronomy 26. Hopefully you're there by now. And um, I'm going to start at verse 5. Verse 5. I'm just going to read a few, few verses. Verse 5. <clears throat> so this is smack in the middle of Moses finishing up commands. He's talking about offerings and tithes. But I want to point out what he says. He says this right here. Uh, to the Israelites, you must then say in the presence of the Lord your God as you're bringing these, these gifts. But listen to what the message he says right here. My ancestor Jacob was a wandering Aramean, or Aramean, depending on your slang, um, who went to live as a foreigner in Egypt. Now listen to this right here. His family arrived few in number, but in Egypt they became a large and mighty nation. Where did they become a large and mighty nation? Egypt. Okay, remember this. When the Egyptians oppressed and humiliated us by making us their slaves, we cried out to the Lord, the God of our ancestors. He heard our cries and saw our, saw our hardship and toil and oppression. So the Lord brought us out of Egypt with a strong hand and a powerful arm, with overwhelming terror and with miraculous signs and wonders. Okay, last verse. He brought us to this place and gave us this land flowing with milk and honey. In Egypt, we arrived few in number, and in Egypt became a large and mighty nation. When they arrived, that is Jacob's family, when they arrived, they were few in number. If you go to Exodus 1, it says they were 70 when they arrived. Um, if you go to Acts, it actually says 75, which is a translation from the Greek, Septuagint. Either way, between 70 and 75. When they arrived, they were few in number. But in Egypt... In Egypt, they became a large and mighty nation. So Egypt, if you don't know, was a powerful nation. Most would say the most powerful in the world at that time. Through Joseph's narrative at the end of Egypt, excuse me, at the end of Genesis, we see Jacob and his family went to Egypt from Canaan, which is ultimately the promised land, due to famine. Okay, so just track with me. I'm going to give you some backstory because it's going to help us the rest of the day or you're not going to know what's going on. So Joseph is sold into slavery. You know Joseph in the book of Genesis, coat of many colors, that Joseph, dream interpreter. He's sold into slavery and through a long story of really crazy events ends up being the top dog in Egypt. Egypt was the most powerful nation in the world at that time. Okay, they had resources, they had everything. There was a famine that hit the land, and Joseph interpreted a dream and predicted and knew through inspiration of the Lord that the famine was coming. So in Egypt, they stored up and stored up so that when the famine came, they would survive the famine, right? But in the land of Canaan, which would be the promised land later, in the land of Canaan, Jacob 
Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. Jacob or Israel, his name was changed to Israel, and his family are living in Canaan. They don't own a piece of property there. They're literally living as foreigners in Canaan. But when famine hits the land, they leave Canaan and go to Egypt. So the story starts in Canaan with 70 family members living as foreigners, and the story ends in Canaan with millions of Israelites being home. So Egypt, the most powerful nation, is where Jacob's family went due to famine. Through Joseph's, and I just mentioned this, let me just go through my uh, notes right here. Through Joseph's dream interpreting and leading, Egypt thrived in the famine, and Joseph brings his family to Egypt to survive the famine. When they left Canaan, in the beginning, there were 70 and were foreigners. When they returned after their season in Egypt, which is 400 plus years, they were millions outnumbering Egypt itself, and Canaan was now the promised land that the Lord would give them. What happened in between? Okay, in between when Jacob and his family left Egypt and when Israel, the nation, returned back to Canaan. What happened in between? Okay, let me just read these couple of verses. You don't have to turn there, but in Exodus 1, it gives a quick account of what happened. And so I just want to read this so you have it. Exodus 1, verse 1. These are the names of the son of Israel, the sons of Israel, that is Jacob, who moved to Egypt with their father, each with his family. And then it goes through the list of names, okay? In all, Jacob had 70 descendants in Egypt, including Joseph, who was already there. In time, Joseph and all his brothers died, ending that entire generation. But their descendants, the Israelites, had many children and grandchildren. Listen to this. In fact, they multiplied so greatly that they became extremely powerful and filled the land. The land of Egypt, that is, okay? Eventually, a new king came to power in Egypt who knew nothing about Joseph or what he had done. And he said to his people, now listen to what he says. Egypt, the most powerful nation on earth at that point. Listen to what he says about the Israelites. Remember, they arrived at 70. He says, look, the people of Israel now outnumber us and are stronger than we are. And if you go through, you can read about the whole account that happened after that. I wanted to point that out because when they leave, they are totally insignificant. 70 people is nothing. It's a speck on the map. It's, no, it's an afterthought. They leave. They come in. And by the time there's another king or another pharaoh, he's looking around. And the Lord has so blessed the Israelites that he's saying, these people outnumber Egypt, the greatest nation on earth. And they could overpower Egypt, the greatest nation on earth. I think sometimes we read through this stuff and, and don't think about this. What, what happened in those years that the Israelites multiplied so greatly that the greatest nation on earth feared them? What happened? They multiplied in Egypt. They multiplied greatly. They became extremely powerful. 
They were greatly blessed. And then ultimately, God raised up Moses, who Deuteronomy 30 says is the greatest prophet in Israel's history. In short, they went from premature 70 strangers in Canaan to fully mature millions in Israel during Egypt incubation. Let me make a huge leap right here because I love doing this, okay? Huge leap. I believe Egypt was a necessary season to the entirety of the story of God, his people, and ultimately us. We view Egypt as a wasted season for Israel because it, in our mind, cost them over 400 years of doing. But in that 400 years, they were becoming the nation required to do what Abram had been promised. I would argue they would have never taken, and now this is a big leap, I would argue they would have never taken the promised land had it not been for their time in Egypt. Listen to this. What's an incubator? It's a controlled environment to mature. Egypt provided them a controlled environment to become. Because remember, what was it? They had the riches beyond wildest dream. They were the greatest nation on earth. While all the other nations are dying of famine, they're thriving. So Egypt provided Israel an incubator to become what God told Abram, the descendants like the stars in the sky and the sand on the sea. Egypt. Let me say it like this. Jesus didn't do one lick of ministry until the age of 30. Jesus didn't do one bit of ministry until 30. What was he doing in those 30 years? Just, just check this out real quick. You don't have to turn there. But what was Jesus doing? This is what it says he was doing. This is in Luke 2. It says that Jesus... Um, at age 12, this is the only account we have of Jesus before age 30. Every year, Jesus' parents went to worship at Jerusalem during the Passover festival. When Jesus turned 12, his parents took him to Jerusalem to observe Passover, as was their custom. A full day after they began their journey home, Joseph and Mary realized Jesus was missing. I don't know how you go a whole day without knowing your kids there, but that's okay. Realized Jesus was missing. They had assumed that he was somewhere in their entourage. That's the Passion Translation. Um, but he was nowhere to be found. After a frantic search among relatives and friends, Mary and Joseph returned to Jerusalem to search for him. After being separated from him for three days, they finally found him. And what was he doing? He was in the temple, sitting among the Jewish rabbis, listening to them and asking them questions. Let me say it like this. Jesus, what was he? Jesus was the Word made flesh. They're teaching on the Word that Jesus actually is. And Christ himself is not walking around at age 12 saying, y'all better listen to me because I'm the Word. Y'all got that paper, but I got it breathing. You know what I'm saying? He doesn't walk. He walks in. He sits down. And what does he do? He learns. Jesus. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, was on the earth for 33 
years. And he did ministry three of those. How does that make sense? Right? I would think, I would think, and I've taught this a little bit before, but in the context of today, I would think if I was God, which thank the Lord, this is exactly why I'm not. But if I was the Lord, I'd say, let's have Jesus doing ministry 30 years and just learning three. You know what I mean? I mean, if we got 30 years, we can do some damage. Unless the whole point wasn't about how much damage we could do. What what was Jesus doing? We know because when he turns 30, before he does one thing, he walks down to the river. John the Baptist is there. He walks in and says, it is required for you to baptize me for me to fulfill all righteousness. In Jewish culture back then, a father that owned business or land or anything else that was going to be inherited by the son, when the son turned age 30, when the son turned age 30, the father would take him down to the river. He would baptize him in water as a symbol of him becoming the, one, the leader in the family. He would baptize him in water, and as he rose up, the father in that culture would say, this is my son in whom I am well pleased, and would transfer the inheritance over. So, so we think that this was just a huge, and it was, this was just some huge moment to mark. No, this, they knew what was going on. Jesus turned 30, and he walks down and gets baptized as every other Hebrew boy would be baptized. I guess at that point, man, would be baptized to receive the inheritance. And then what does he hear? The same thing that every single son heard from their father. This is my son in whom I am well pleased. And he goes off, and what does he start doing? Bringing the kingdom to the earth. So Jesus had to, uh, Jesus Christ had to align himself in who he was in order to leverage who he was to do anything. If that's Jesus, I would dare say we need to be a little more aware of who we are becoming. Look at Paul. Paul has this encounter on the road to Damascus, has this massive encounter, and what does he do? Y'all pony up. We're going to every country on planet earth. We're going to spread the gospel. You know what he does? He goes and he finds a spiritual father and he spends weeks and weeks becoming what that encounter had given him access to. And I bet if you went to Paul and you said, hey, Paul, man, all this ministry that you did, do you feel like you were fulfilled? I, I, I could be wrong. We'll ask him one day when we see him. But I guarantee you, Paul would look at you and say, if all I had was that encounter on the road to Damascus and never did one other thing, I'm totally satisfied. Because, And people are going to hear this because this is what we do in America. People are going to hear this and say, Josh is talking about not, no, no, no. I'm talking about doing more ministry than we've ever done in our lives. I'm talking about you influencing more people at your job than you ever have in your whole life. I'm talking about you influencing CIU and USC and Clemson, wherever other school you go to if you're watching this, influencing those students in a way you've never influenced them in your life. 
opening businesses, doing, doing politics, good grief, in a way that we have never done in our lives. And do you know how we're going to do that? It's not by buckling up and burning it out and running and running and running and running until we can't run anymore and then quitting the whole thing. It's going to be you becoming so solidified in who he says you are that every single amount of success that you find in your life comes from hearing the words, that's my beloved son in whom I am well pleased, not by doing ministry for thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands of people. Y'all see this? We have, we have young people that bounce all over the place because they can't find their purpose because your purpose is not found in a location. Your purpose is found in a secret place. I know this ain't popular. Like, like I know some of y'all are looking at me like I got five heads. That's okay. I'm cool with it because I'm more worried about you becoming who you were designed to become than you doing a bunch of awesome stuff and then you get into the end of your life and saying, I don't even know if I believe in this stuff anymore because that's what people are doing right now. Or brother, or, or brother, I just gonna waste my life. I, I would, you're gonna waste your life if you don't become who you need to become first. Every person in Scripture that did anything of influence first went through a season where they got rooted in the fullness of who they were. Oh man, I, when I start talking about this stuff, I feel it all over me. The magnitude of what you do. For the kingdom, whether that be in business, education, finance, medical, political, or ministerial, everything you do for the kingdom is solely determined by the level of which you're convinced of who you are. I've got 12 stars beside that note right there. So let me just say it again. The magnitude of what you do for the kingdom in any area of our culture is solely determined by the level of which you are convinced of who you are. This is the purpose of the incubation season. Maturing, to mature is to become. And to become is to be convinced. And to be convinced is to be. Let me say this one more time and you can just like sift through this when you get home. Maturing is becoming identity. Becoming is being convinced of who you're becoming. And being convinced of who you're becoming will lead to you actually being to who you had to convince yourself you were before. Listen to what Romans 8 says real quick. Romans 8. I told y'all I wasn't going to read a lot. I really just meant in that one section. So Romans 8. <laughs> I'm just playing. I've only got a couple of verses here. Romans 8. Listen to this. This is what Paul says. He says, in verse 14, he says, For we know that the law, the law is divinely inspired and comes from the spiritual realm. Now, on this, uh, Romans 7, sorry, Romans 7, verse 14, then we'll jump over to Romans 8, 14. So just, just hear this for a second. Sorry. Okay. We know the law is divinely inspired and comes from the spiritual realm. But I am convinced, I am, but I am a human being made of flesh and trafficked as a slave under sin's authority. 
Okay? I'm a mystery to myself for I want to do what is right but end up doing wrong or what my moral instincts condemn. And if my behavior is not in line with my desire, my conscience still confirms the excellence of the law. And now I realize it's no longer my true self doing it, but the unwelcome intruder of sin in my humanity. And then he goes through and kind of breaks down what all that means. And that's Paul talking about him living apart from Christ. How his body, how his life wants to operate when he wants to do things on his own. Right? Romans 8, 14 says this, though. The mature children of God are those who are moved by the impulses of the Holy Spirit. And you did not receive the spirit of religious duty, leading you back into the fear of never being good enough, but you have received the spirit of full acceptance enfolding you into the family of God. And you will never feel orphaned, for as he rises up within us, our spirits join him in saying the words of tender affection. Listen, beloved father. Beloved Father, I think that is an awful translation in all of our Bibles. How many of you call your, well, some of y'all might do this. I think, actually, my dad calls his dad this. How many of you call your dad Father? Is there anybody in the room? You do? You do? Okay. For the most part, how many of you call your, your father Dad, Daddy, Papa, anything else? Okay, awesome. So as we're reading through this, father is typically very, uh, very um, professional sounding, if you will. Uh, so if you do that, totally cool. But the Greek word here is not father. Right? Because this is what we think. You know, the Holy Spirit, our spirits join him in saying the words of tender affection Beloved Father. No, no, no. The Greek word right there is Abba. All of you know this word, I'm sure, if you've been at church at any point. Okay? Abba could be translated as Daddy or Papa. So what every one of your Bibles, I believe, should say is, for as he rises up within us, listen to how this changes this. As he rises up within us, our spirits join him in saying the words of tender affection, beloved Papa. How does that, how does this change? The mature children of God are those who are moved by the impulses of the spirit. The Greek, actually, when it says the mature children of God are those who are moved by the Spirit, the Greek word is very emphatic. We don't really have an English word for it. It should be something to the effect of, the mature, mature children of God are those and only those who are moved by the impulses of the Spirit. What is Paul saying? Paul is saying in Romans 7, this is who I was when I was running the show and when I still try to run the show. In Romans 8, what he's saying is, is this is who I am when I live in who I have become. So, so real practically, real practically, who is this message for that I'm talking about today? And this is where I'm going to kind of get into some of the meat. And this is my last couple of pages of notes. So this message is for anyone 
who knows Yahweh spoke something over you, but your current situation seems mundane. Okay, hello 2020. Your current situation seems mundane or purposeless. Maybe you've said things like, I'm called to do this, but I'm here still doing this. Maybe you've said something like, I'm called to do this, but for right now, I'm still just doing this. And you feel like it's just mundane and purposeless. And if you really were just like real, you would probably say this season is really a waste. You might say it's a transition season. You might see it's a stepping stone season. However you want to say that. At the end of the day, most of you view mundane seasons, myself included, typically as a waste. Worthless. Amen, whatever phone that was. Take this with love. Take this with love. But knowing what I have taught up to this point, if you haven't been released to do it's probably because you still haven't fully become. Take this with love, okay? I love y'all. If you're new, I love you. I haven't met you, but I will after the service. If you haven't been released to do, it's probably because you still haven't fully become. Rather than trying to make things happen prematurely, Okay, it's like what happens when you give the keys to a Lamborghini to an eight-year-old. What happens? It wrecks, right? Rather than trying to make things happen prematurely, rewire how you see the here and now. Don't see this as a wasted season until God gets in a good enough mood to release you, right? I mean, this is how we view God. Man, this is just a wasted season. Lord, I hope he gets in a good mood soon because then he's going to give me everything he promised me. No, he's in a good mood. He's in a real good mood. He hasn't given me the fullness of what he's promised me. Here we go. You know why? Not because he's mean, not because he's waiting, not because his plans are, you know, for me to just suffer for a little while, and definitely not because he's sovereign and he's just sitting around and waiting for the perfect moment so that I can be a robot and step into it. You know why? Because I am not ready. And that's okay. It's okay. Because it's not about what I do anyway. So I can find joy in seasons that I used to call mundane. So much joy that even when he starts to release me into things, I stay who I am. I stay rooted in who I am. And all of a sudden I find joy in his eyes rather than find joy in his yeses. And I think we should find joy in both. But if you don't find joy in his eyes first, his yeses will never have the intended effect on your life. In fact, typically, when he releases you into things, those things will become the gods you worship because it was never about him in the first place. It was about leveraging him to get what really we wanted. Don't see this as a wasted season. Don't even see this as a, what a lot of popular messages today are. 
Don't even see this as, I might not be there yet, but I still believe. How many of us have heard those messages? Like, he, you, you might not be there yet, but God is still good. Yeah, of, course, he's, of course he's good. What, what's God's goodness got to do with anything? His goodness never changes. But this, you see what I, we make ourselves so consistent and so constant because we're Americans and we're de- democratic and we elect. Right? This, this is what we do. So we say, you know what? I'm going to stay consistent. I'm going to stay solid. And when God's ready to fling the right arrow my way, I'll be ready. Nope. God is consistent. He's never changed. He's never moved. His goodness is not in question. Not in question. So it's not, I'm going to hold strong until he comes through. It's, I'm going to dance no matter what season I'm in because I have access to the one that in history... Jesus Christ came to die on a cross to give me access to. He didn't come to die so that I could do a bunch of stuff. He came to die so that I could be a bunch of stuff. And in being a bunch of stuff, I would actually start to accomplish a bunch of stuff. I see you watching me back there. She just learned taking it all in. I see you. She smiled as soon as I said that too. Right? This, this, this is so important coming out of a season. I believe we're on the end of it. Lord, help us. We're on the end of this. Out of the season of COVID. And going into a year where we're going to start getting back to normal at some point. We can't go back to how things were. Mr. Bragg says this all the time. We cannot go back to the same games we played, to the same mask we wore, all in the name of trying to be something. That's, well, that can't be what we do. We need to go into next year with the posture that I'm going to make him something if it costs me being nothing the rest of my life. What does John say? I must become less, I must decrease, and he must increase. We've seen it like this. I must increase, and if it costs him to decrease, that's fine because i got to get mine. This whole election, God is used as a pawn. Nobody cares. They care if you get out and vote for him. But this, this is what we have done. God is nothing but a pawn that we use and we wonder why he's not coming through like he used to come through. It's because he's not going to release a bunch of kids to inherit the kingdom. He's going to release mature sons and daughters to inherit the kingdom. That's why I say it is imperative for you to become who you're designed to become. What does it say about the new wine and the new wineskins? In love, he withholds new wine. From old wineskins. Why? Because if he released new wine into an old, dried up wineskin, what would happen? The wineskin would burst and the wine would be wasted. Lord, why haven't Lord, why haven't you poured out new wine on America? Because I love you way too much to pour this into that. It's never been about his unwillingness to pour it. It's never been about an unwillingness to send fire. And it's really never been about a lack of fire. It's always been about the receiver. You can throw the best spiral on planet Earth, but if the receiver doesn't catch it, it's incomplete and worthless. So what does he say? He says, instead, what I'm going to do, and I've taught this, but if you're new, let me just give you a little refresher is when the, when the Bible talks about new wineskins and old wineskins, there's two Greek words that are translated as new. There is neos, which means I literally make a new wineskin. And then there's kainos, closely related, 
which means I restore the old wineskin to its new state. One means brand new in age. One means new in quality. You want to really be messed with? Do you know which word John says when he says, Behold, I saw the new heavens and new earth descending from the heavenly realm? Do you know what he says? Kaihinos. Uh-oh. Didn't study that bad boy. John didn't see a brand new thing. He saw a restored thing. <laughs> okay. Every, I got to hit it every week at least once until people just start getting it. We're, we're sitting around thinking Jesus is going to come like the American army with atomic bombs. Going to be real surprised when he comes with a bunch of crowns. Anyway, <laughs> what we often try to do is we try to beg and beg and beg and beg and beg for new wine because the process of us becoming not a neos wineskin, a kaihinos wineskin, a restored wineskin, is uncomfortable and it takes a long time. It actually takes longer for you to do what they did. It takes, a, it takes longer for you to restore an old wineskin than to make a new wineskin. Did you know that? Probably not. I just studied that this week, so it's kind of cool. But what they would do is they would take an old wineskin. It would be labeled as old. Do you know how they would label it as old? When it was dried out and it was unflexible. When it lost its flexibility and it was dried out, it was labeled as an old one. So they would take an old wineskin and they would heat up oil in fire. Over fire, they would heat up oil till it got hot. Then they would take the old one skin, literally baptize it in oil, and massage the oil into the wine skin until it got its flexibility back. So when Jesus says, if I pour new wine into an old wine skin, it would burst and the wine would be wasted but I will pour new wine into a new wineskin. When he says that, he's not talking about something that's been thrown away and recreated. He's talking about something that's been baptized in anointing. He's talking about somebody who has gone through the process of allowing the old inflexible ideas and religion and mask and everything else. Allowing all that stuff to be baptized in oil heated over fire so that when you're brought back out, he can release it to you. So listen, it's, it's, it's not an issue of when is he ready to pour it. Not an issue. He's ready to pour it when you become new. In other words, this could take a hundred years, or this could take one year, or this could take two years as it relates to new wine, depending on your willingness to become who you're designed to become. And so we have, and I just, I'm speaking to young people primarily in some of this stuff, but older people too, but we have a, a just so many young people who are searching for purpose. Some of y'all go to college. I mean, y'all know this. Kids just searching for purpose and searching to do something. I've got to do something. I've got to make a name for myself. I've got to get my career going. I've got to get this diploma to work. I've got to pay off my student loans. I've got to get, 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 going, 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 going. I've got to do it. And then we look at people, especially younger people, 
who are staying rooted at home, who are sticking around the house, whatever the case may be, we're looking at them as if they're doing something wrong or they're doing something less than. So we don't celebrate the people who are staying consistent. We definitely don't celebrate the people who are staying consistent in the secret place. We celebrate those who seem to be doing something big and grand. And the ones who are in the secret place doing what no one else sees are actually going to be the ones who inherit the kingdom. So don't even see this season as a, I might not be there yet, but I still believe season. See this as what it is. The joy-filled, imperative, full of purpose season where you are becoming who you are meant to be, the bride of Christ, joined in union as one with him, seated with him, and the keys to the kingdom are in your hand. When that happens, when you start to see that, Matt, go ahead and come up here. When that happens, you'll see something amazing. Because this is what I've seen. This is how I'm going to wrap it up. We're actually going to take communion before we leave. That's why you got the little cups in your seats. But when this happens, I, I was a worship leader, if you don't know me. I was a worship leader at the largest church in the country at that point. And I grew up in super traditional church, uh, Pentecostal holiness. That's where women didn't wear pants, the whole nine yards. Okay, So that's how I grew up. So my rebellion in my life wasn't to, you know, drugs and alcohol. I've never smoked anything in my life, nothing. You know, so um, that wasn't my rebellion. My rebellion was to modern church because that was literally a rebellion to the way I grew up. So it was, you know, I'm going to go into church and I'm going to wear my skinny jeans. Ain't nobody going to say anything about it. You know, that type of thing. I'm going to wear a deep V, not just a V, deep V, you know. And um, I still got a couple of those shirts at home. I laugh about it sometimes. But, um, you know, I, I ain't talking about here. I'm talking about like here. And, um, you know, and I'm going to wear, I don't even like skulls, but I'm going to just wear skulls just because I can, you know, and all that stuff. And, um, and so I was a worship leader became a worship leader at a large church in Kentucky and then became a worship leader at the largest church in America at that time and uh, used God's, you know, y'all know my story if you've been here, but used God's stage to fulfill what I thought was my dreams, which was to become famous. I wanted, I wanted to be something. I wanted to be somebody. I loved being able to get on social media and post, you know, like we had thousands at church today. Thousands lined out the door, thousands repeating prayers. Because in my head, I knew all the people that I grew up with were looking at this saying like, man, Josh has become something. And y'all think I'm crazy, but some of y'all do the same stuff. And if you don't today, you have in the past. And if you have in the past, you're lying. But, no, I'm just kidding. But you know, but like this, we, we, we have in our mind that I'm nothing unless I do something. And when we started this church, when we started this church, this came out of the posture of, number one, I never wanted to start a church because pastors, God bless them. I think this is even Pastor Appreciation Month. I could be wrong. I think it is. Some of y'all need to reach out to some pastors y'all grew up with and let them know you're thankful for them because this has been the worst year for some pastors, for most pastors, the worst year. Can you imagine 
having to close your doors, not knowing if money's going to come in. And then also throughout the year, every single word you say is judged. And if you say the wrong thing, and most of the time when you say anything, half of your church is mad at you. And half of your church is leaving. Can you imagine that? Luckily, we haven't necessarily had that issue for the most part. But, I mean, so reach out to that. But, when we started this church, it came from me being radically transformed in the secret place to the point where I looked around me, and this isn't a knock in any way, shape, or form, but I looked around me and said, there is nowhere in Columbia that is just for him. There's a lot of places that are for people, which is awesome. But there's nowhere in Columbia where people show up to be all about him. Nowhere. And so I was like, well, if nobody's doing it, I'm going to create that space. If nobody shows up, nobody shows up. We never did a fundraising campaign. We never did a social media marketing campaign. We never did SEO. I don't even know what that is, but we never did that stuff. You know what we did? We stayed in the secret place. The Lord's provided for all of our needs exceeding abundantly. You guys are in the room today. I don't know how you heard about it, but it wasn't because of a Google marketing promo. I mean, maybe it was. Maybe somebody did that for us. I don't know. But do you know what I'm saying? But you're in the room today simply because a group of people, starting with me and my family and my brother, because a group of people were convinced if we could become all we were designed to become, it would lead to a light pouring over Columbia that the darkness could not extinguish. And, th- and that's what we're beginning to see. We've had three baptisms over the past month from people who are being transformed. You know what I mean? And in, a, in one season of my life, I would have been like, three, that's it? Pfft, who cares? In this season of my life, I'm saying three people. Actually, I guess it was... Uh, Six, six total in those three baptisms. Six people are being reborn into who they were designed to be. You know what I'm saying? Everything has a purpose because I've rooted success in me and him face to face. One thing I desire, this shall I seek for the rest of my life to dwell in the house of the Lord forever, to gaze upon the beauty of your countenance and inquire in your temple. That has been my posture and my root in this church's posture and what we're rooted in. And that's why we're seeing the Lord say, I choose Zion. You know when they're going into the land? I'm done. You know when they go into the land? I have to tell myself that to remind myself that I'm getting done. And to keep, encourage you to stay awake. So my grandpa, he's a preacher. That's what he'll do. He'll be like, I'm, all, I'm, I'm landing the plane two hours later, still going. Um, it's just, a, you know, it's, because when you hear that, I'm landing the plane. It's like, all right, cool. I need to focus in. And then two hours later, you're still there. But I really am. My notes are done. In this place, let me say it like this. When you begin to see who you are as how you view success, when you begin to see seasons that you would used to call mundane or purposeless seasons, when you begin to see those seasons as actually full of purpose, here's what will begin to happen. All of a sudden, what you do will mean less and less. And this is what I've started doing in my life, and this is what I want to encourage you with. You'll actually start asking him to keep you in things you once begged him to get you out of. And there, 
you'll find yourself doing what identity overflows of. You, you start allowing the secret place to be like Christmas morning every morning. And when you wake up, he's giddy and excited to just be with you. And you start communing and walking in the cool of the day. What you'll start to see is everything I used to want to do really doesn't mean as much anymore. As long as I got this. As long as I got a daughter that is being raised up to see the one thing as the only thing. As long as I've got a family of people around me in a church that is so passionate about seeing the fullness of his kingdom come and his will being done here as in heaven. As long as I've got that around me, what we do doesn't mean as much anymore. So I can be an Abraham who never owns an acre in the promised land. And when I die, I have one son in the line of the promise. One. I can be that and still be full of faith, seeing from afar that hundreds of years down the line, Joshua is going to cross the Jordan River, take 12 stones and stack them on top of each other and start marching around Jericho to take the land that they were promised. I can be that. You can be an Isaac and a Jacob that sees from afar what Yahweh has spoken to you over and over and over and over because it's not about how much time it will take. It's about Yahweh fully fulfilling the promise that he spoke over your life. It's not about how much time it'll take. I said this last week. God does not give three thoughts to, well, I wonder, man, what time is, man, he's already 30? 30? You know, Josh is turning 29 this year. We need to get him a, a TV show. That's not what he's saying. He's saying, now Veda, ruler, my daughter, ruler. Now that girl's got some purpose in her. So what I'm going to let Josh do is I'm going to just let him sit in this season for a little while. And I'm going to make him a great dad. And I'm going to make him a great husband. And I'm going to give him so much love that he feels uncomfortable tasting it. Because in his daughter, there is a ruler that needs to be raised up. And if I'm not careful, I'll start seeing that as insignificant when that's actually the most significant. What if Yahweh's looking at you and he's saying they're not married yet? They sure don't have kids yet. Better not. They're not married yet. But they're not married yet. They don't have kids yet. They're not even doing what they want to be doing yet. But I'm going to let them sit in this season for a little bit because I see some kids on the way. I see a groom. On, I see a family on the way. I see a city on the way that will not be accomplished unless they know that they know that they know that they know that even when it's raining, even when the wind's blowing, even when the world is going crazy like it is now, that we are stood firm on the rock of our salvation, that we can't be shaken, that we can't be moved, that we can't be affected, that our emotions are completely under control because we're rooted in who we are. You are the most God most people will ever see. So what we're going to do, we're going to take communion. If you got your cups, hopefully y'all didn't go ahead and take them. <laughs> Because I know it's lunchtime, some of y'all getting hungry. 
and not a snack. No, I'm just kidding. Um, let me, uh, actually, let me go ahead and get mine open so I don't spill it all over myself. Hold on one second. dangerous doing this on our rented carpet. Um, here's why I want to do communion today. Because I want, to, I want to remind you, you know, Jesus, when he told the disciples to take this, um, the bread, which this is fresh. I just got, we just bought this this week, so these are fresh. I don't know if they'll taste fresh, but they're fresh. Um, but, um, and we would have done real bread, but, you know, COVID. Um, this, he said, is my body, which is broken for you. And then the blood is the blood that covers you for the forgiveness of your sins. But I, I did this, and we, we did this a little bit in Norway, and it was unbelievable. In fact, when we did this in Norway, um, Sarah, where are you, Sarah? Yeah, you might, you might want to be, <laughs> be ready, just in case. No, it's good. When we did this in Norway, some, some, a lady was delivered from an evil spirit after we did communion. It was crazy. Um, it was so cool. But... Um, but I, w- I, wanted, I want you to see this today. Like, this is your purpose. This is your purpose. E- every ounce of your purpose can be found in here, in Jesus. Everything you do on planet Earth, every, sing- that, every single thing that you do will be found within the life in union with Jesus. And so I literally want us especially those who have been walking through one of these mundane type seasons to take this knowing that number one, he's got it. It's all under control. He hasn't forgotten. He is specifically leaving you where you are so that you can become. So I'm going to do this. As we take the body that was broken, as we take this, I just want you to visualize it. Go ahead and close your eyes for a minute. As you take this, and if you're at home, you can take it with whatever you got. I forgot to mention that. But as we take this, I want you to visualize your life in his becoming one. Literally as you're eating it and as the bread is swallowed and as it goes down into your body and begins to be digested. I I want you to, to feel literally you and him becoming one. Eat my flesh, drink my blood, or you have no part in me, he said. So, Lord, I pray over the body right now, this bread. I pray that you would use this as a sign and a wonder to allow us to remember who we are. That we are one with you in your name. Amen. Go ahead and take the bread. The blood, just keep your eyes closed if you don't mind, because I want you to see this. As you take this, I want you to see every ounce of not just your old identity, but your old mindsets, how you used to view God, how you used to view yourself, how you used to call yourself worthless, how you used to call yourself wasted. As we take this and the blood begins to, the, the drink begins representing the blood begins to be poured into your mouth and swallowed and enter into your body same way 
I want you to see all that going away. That as you take this, he's literally covering and removing all that old stuff, almost like a baptism in a sense. And that when you take this, all the old is covered in the blood so that the body that you just ate could be the one and only thing that's still living. So Lord, I pray over the blood. I pray that it would remove old mindsets. I pray that it would remove old identities, old junk, old religion and mask. I pray that it would remove that and cover it right now in Jesus' name. Amen. Y'all go ahead and take it. Lord, I pray over this day. I pray that you would seal this in us. I pray that you would let us find so much joy in just becoming. So much joy in becoming. That we're not in a hurry. That you're not in a hurry. That we have such a unique position in the earth that you need us to become the mature sons and daughters of God to actually live in that. And so, Lord, we love you today in your name that we pray. Amen.